It is always a balance to try and keep the text set within its context, to see the forest, if you will, and then also to try and understand the trees. The forest, if you will, is here as we look at the last part, not, not, we won't go to the very end of the chapter, but as we kind of uh, come to the end of Matthew chapter 9 today, is that Matthew is giving us this, uh, this, this final triad of miracles. And so there's a triad of triads, if you will. Uh, Matthew has given us three sets of three miracles, and they're not accidentally arranged. Remember, I'm going to keep reminding us of this, that Matthew tends to do two things. He tends to organize his content uh, theologically, so generally he is moving through the timeline of Jesus' ministry, but he is not afraid to move things around in their timeline to present them to us theologically, and he tends to, uh, to, to distill everything down to its most basic form for the points that he's making, and so we lean a lot on Mark and Luke who speak of these events as well. The first triad of miracles, the first three miracles, was the healing of a leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. The second three miracles was the calming of the storm, the casting out of the demons from the two men in the region of Gadara, the Decapolis across the Sea of Galilee, and then the healing of the paralytic. Here today, our triad of miracles is this kind of two-for-one miracle, this double miracle, if you will, of the girl who had died, and at the same time, the woman who had suffered a discharge of blood. And then we see the healing of two blind men, and then finally, the healing of a mute man. In order to understand the forest and keep this in its context, excuse me, in order to keep it in its context, we have to go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. And so chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew were presented to this initial introduction of Jesus' ministry with this lengthy sermon. No doubt we're getting the cliff notes or maybe here Matthew's notes as we, uh, as we see this, this many days of teaching distilled down into these three chapters. But Jesus uh, teaches many moral lessons about this kingdom that he, uh, uh, that he is, is bringing. And then we get this reaction at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so after we're presented with the, the teaching of Jesus, we are presented with the authority of Jesus, that he is teaching as one who has authority. And from chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8, now through the end of chapter 9, with these three sets of three miracles, Matthew has been illustrating for us that authority, thank you Bradley, that Jesus has. He wants to prove it. The crowds recognized authority in Jesus' teaching, and Matthew is now showing it to us. And he does so through these natural miracles, miracles of healing sickness and disease and deformity and storms. He does so by showing us supernatural miracles, the casting out of demons, which we'll see again today, and ultimately the forgiveness of sins. And that kind of really brings us to the point. What Matthew really wants us to see 
is that Jesus is able to forgive sin. He does have authority. He has authority to forgive sin and to heal. And in fact, all of the healings, all of the miracles, all of the storm calming and demon casting is about meeting physical needs for the purpose of showing us that Jesus also has the authority to meet spiritual ones as well. And so Matthew shows us here in these final three miracles what all this means for us. So much of Scripture is narrative, and it's narrative for a reason. God is giving us this grand story of redemptive history. And the reason we're so often presented with narrative is because uh, we, we are able to, through these stories, find our place in the story. I've marveled over the fact that I don't even know how many years it's been since the final Harry Potter movie came out. And it was not a couple of weeks ago that we were in Barnes & Noble in the Tri-Cities, and here on this massive wall of Legos is a bunch of Harry Potter Legos and Harry Potter wands and Harry Potter memorabilia. Why is it that Harry Potter continues to be this incredibly... uh, powerful thing in the lives of people? Why do people continue to dress up like Harry Potter? I think it's because God has made us. He's built into us this desire to live into a narrative that is greater than just my daily life. We're part of a much bigger story. And when we don't get the real story, we'll live into just about any story. It's actually, if I might be controversial here for a minute, not the worst story that people can live into. This kind of cosmic uh, good versus evil, where the good guys are the good guys. We're never asked to believe that the bad guys are the good guys. Where the bad guys are the bad guys, and even though they think they're good, we're presented that they're the bad guys. And ultimately, by the end of it, Harry's presented with the idea that the big difference between him, the hero, and and the other guy who's the bad guy is just choices. That he's a product of his choices. It's really not the worst story that your kids can, can identify with, unless maybe they're identifying with the wrong people in the story. I I don't know. But we have this innate desire in us to live into this grand narrative that's far bigger than us. And I think what Matthew is doing with these final three miracles is showing us how our lives fit into the narrative. In the first three miracles, there were some who wanted to follow Jesus. But then they were presented with the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And if you're going to follow me, birds have nests and foxes have dens, but, but I've got nothing. And if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to have nothing. And when, when these particular disciples that were presented with in Matthew counted the cost, they didn't find Jesus worthy. And they didn't follow him. And the, the point we looked at there was that Jesus will be found worthy of abandoning everything for, or he will not be found at all. In the second three miracles, uh, Matthew follows Jesus 
uh, or in, in the second three miracles, Matthew, sitting in his tax booth, follows Jesus, and then we're confronted with or, or revealed this, uh, this instance where Matthew invited all of these tax collectors and sinners, the people he could associate with, uh, to his house to, to hear and see who Jesus was. And when we find Jesus worthy, when we say whether or not we have to give everything up, that we would be willing to give everything up to follow him, we find in the story of Matthew and his friends that we have to be willing to follow him anywhere. And how do we respond to the three miracles we'll see today? Well, I think that's the section we're going to be moving into. So let me see if I can show you how Matthew packages our response to the authority of Jesus in the remainder of Matthew chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. We're not going to read all of this text, but just look at the headings that may come in your Bible at verse 35. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And the call is to pray to the Lord that he would send out laborers into his harvest. And then in chapter 10, starting in verse 1, he calls the 12 apostles. And he says, come, follow me. And, and these 12 men follow him. But what does he do with them immediately? Verse 5, he sends them out to go tell people of who he is. What Matthew presents us with in the remainder of 9 and into chapter 10 is the fact that when Jesus is found worthy, and when we follow him wherever he goes, and when we understand his authority properly, the response is to know that he calls us to pray for laborers and then to be those laborers who go out in the harvest and call others to follow him. Jim Boyce, speaking of uh, this particular section of Scripture here, says this. He says, significantly, chapters 8 through 10 end with Jesus commissioning the disciples to the task of world evangelism, which is a way of saying that this is the work to which true discipleship leads. If we have left everything to follow Jesus, as the disciples did, and if we have been truly received by Jesus and have been forgiven of our sin, as Matthew was, then we will tell others about Jesus. We will not be content until the entire world has been told that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Savior. I think that's exactly where Matthew is leading us. And so let's look at our text today and see it here. We're going to look at these three miracles of Jesus. And typical of Matthew, his version is the most condensed Mark and Luke's are much longer, even if you just count the number of verses. Mark's is the longest and, and Luke's is uh, much longer. That is of this first miracle. The second two miracles, I think, uh, or maybe it's the final miracle, uh, is, is unique to Matthew. But let's look at these three miracles. The first miracle we see is a double healing. And by the way, we're going to look at the miracles. We're going to see the context of those miracles and what Jesus did. And then we're going to consider what each of the three miracles uh, mean for us and what Jesus has to offer us. And so first, a double healing. Turn with me to uh, look at verse 18. Verse 18. While he was saying these things, that is, while Jesus was still speaking to the disciples of John the Baptist, explaining uh, why Old Testament form doesn't fit into New Testament 
function, while he was still saying these things, behold, a ruler came in. Now, ruler here, this word is, is likely, though we're not certain, but usually refers to the ruler of a synagogue. So this would have been a Jewish person, a, a Jewish man who was leading the synagogue in this area. And this ruler comes into Jesus and kneels before him and says, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hands on her and she will live. Now, if we consider Mark and Luke, what we see is that as this ruler was coming to Jesus, he just thought his daughter was sick. His daughter had been sick. He was desperate to see his daughter healed. And so he comes to Jesus to seek healing. But as he is either awaiting to get to Jesus or trying to get to Jesus or conversing with Jesus, uh, some people come to him and report to him, your daughter has died don't bother Jesus anymore. There's nothing at this point that, that, he can, that he can do. Jairus is this man's name, as Mark names him, but this report was brought to Jairus that his daughter was dead. But there's this, this desperation that leads him to come to Jesus and ask for help. And the death of his daughter, far from, from uh, removing the desperation, only furthers his desperation. And there's some uh, throughout Christian history who has criticized him for this. Well, he's only coming to Jesus because he's desperate for something that Jesus can offer. I hope that sounds ridiculous to us. How many people, how many of us have come to Jesus whether it's initially for salvation or something that we simply needed after salvation that we knew we could not provide for ourselves in desperation and said, Lord, I know that only you can do this. I need your help. I don't think Matthew is criticizing this guy at all. I don't think Jesus is criticizing him at all for his desperation. If you're desperate, desperate for forgiveness, desperate for I don't even know what. Take that desperation to Jesus. He might not give you what you're desperate for. He might reorient your desires. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not promising that Jesus is going to give us everything we're desperate for. But if desperation leads us to the Lord, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in verse 19, far from being uh, critical of uh, this man, of Jairus, he rose and he followed him with his disciples. Jesus says, yeah, I will come and I will heal your daughter. And he follows him. And on the way, verse 20, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. In, in the process of going to meet the needs of one desperate individual, Jesus is met by another desperate individual. And Matthew does a great job of handling sensitively as a man writing about a woman who is, uh, who is clearly from the context struggling with some kind of menstrual bleeding that had not gone away for, for 12 years. Of course she was desperate. Let's not consider even the physical implications of that, the, the anemia, the exhaustion, the misery that that might have caused. But uh, Jim Boyce, again, points out three realities for this poor woman. 
And I think it goes a long way to helping us understand why she was so desperate. Number one, she was unclean. Leviticus chapter 15 and and other areas of Scripture give all sorts of reasons for which uh, a man or a woman would become unclean ceremonially and therefore unable to enter the temple, unable to sacrifice, unable to worship. And so she would have been viewed unclean, as unclean. She would have not had access to Israel's worship, to, to Israel's system of sacrifice and religion. And so she was religiously unclean. What that led to is the second reason she was probably desperate is that she was isolated. Because what happens is if you come into contact with somebody who is unclean, whether that be a man for certain reasons or a woman for certain reasons or a dead body or many other things, in fact, you became unclean. And so as one who was unclean and isolated from the temple, she would have been isolated or excluded from the temple. She would have been isolated from the community around her. People would have not wanted to have anything to do with her. They couldn't sit in a chair after she sat there. Her her husband would not have been able to even lay in the same bed as her if she had a husband. If she didn't have a husband, she would not have been able to marry. She would have been very, very lonely. Luke gives us an additional detail. Being a physician, he tells us that she was uncurable, that there was no fix for this, and in fact, that she was getting worse. And so we see how desperate she must have been. Imagine the picture, a rabbi and a synagogue leader at the lowest understanding, the Messiah and a synagogue leader for a more proper understanding. And her desperation led her to do something that likely would have been infuriating to anybody else. She touched him. She touched him. And she was clean. Jesus understands what's going on. He has compassion on her. She said to herself, verse 21, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, don't touch me. That would have been the expected response. Instead, he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. When somebody died, you would have about a week-long mourning ceremony, and you would hire musicians, you would hire professional mourners. Uh, this, This gal had been dead for long enough that the people who would have been hired to come mourn were already there. And he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus and Paul love to refer to death as sleep. And I don't think this is accidental. I think it's intentional. I think what they want us to see regularly in referring to death as sleep is its temporary nature. That whether it's a resurrection to eternity in heaven with the Lord or to eternal punishment in hell, that everyone is ultimately resurrected and therefore death is always as temporary as sleep. And even as we're laid in the bed of the grave, we will someday rise again. But Jesus says, go away. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, 
he went in and took her by the hand. This would be shocking for anybody to read. Because as much as a a bleeding woman may have made Jesus unclean, so would a dead body. You cannot touch a dead body without being ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so I think both of these are, are intended to show us what we're all like apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus, we're all unclean, separated from God. They're separated from the temple. That's representative to us of God. We're all spiritually unclean because of our sin and, and separated from God by it. We're all isolated Sin destroys relationships. And so our sin, uh, it isolates us from other people as well. And thirdly, we're all incurable. There's no way. You can't just go to the doctor and, and get sin fixed. You can't just try and be good enough or enough self-help, enough self-improvement, enough therapy, and you'll, just, you'll get over the problem of sin and be all right. It's an in curable problem on our own. We, like this girl, like this woman, are dead in our transgressions and sin in which we once walked, to quote Paul from Ephesians. We're all unclean and separated from God. We're all isolated from others because of our sin, and we're all incurable. And the expectation is that that uncleanness spreads from one person to another. And that's not a false expectation. But our expectations get shattered as we see Jesus, who rather than being unclean by the touch of the unclean, makes the unclean clean. It's this very contrary, very contrasting response. Contact with him did not leave him unclean. It left them well. Secondly, Matthew presents us with this uh, healing of two blind men. Verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, from raising this girl to life, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, Son of David. This is our first encounter with the term Son of David in uh, the book of Matthew, and it's a very messianic expectation. I I think here's what's going through the mind of these two blind men. We're blind, we we desperately want to see if he's the Messiah, then he will be able to make us well. This is not uh, false expectations. Isaiah 35 verses 5 through 6 makes it clear that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. And so in their desperation to see Jesus, he brings them inside. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. If the first miracle shows our unclean condition apart from Jesus, then the second shows our blind condition. 
Apart from Jesus, it is impossible to see God rightly. And apart from seeing God rightly in and through Jesus, we'll never see others rightly because we'll never understand the image of God in them. And we'll never see the world around us rightly because he's the one who created it and and designed it and tells us how to live well in it. Until we come to Christ for spiritual sight, we're all blind as these two men. And thirdly, we get the healing of a demon-possessed man. Verse 27, uh, I'm sorry, verse 32. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was there anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The final miracle is one that shows us or also shows us our spiritual condition. Sin and Satan leave us all mute, unable to speak or even say the right things. And in describing our condition in our sin in Romans 3, uh, Paul, quoting uh, Old Testament scripture, quoting the Psalms in, in many places, tells us that our our throats, our mouths, our open graves, our tongues practice deceit. Cursing and bitterness is on our lips. Our, Our mouths, apart from the healing work of Christ, are just open graves. And though we can speak, unlike the mute man, we don't have anything worth saying. But when we come to Jesus, when he heals us, and our mouths are loosed, we can speak of glorious things, things that accompany salvation. Here's the content of the three miracles. But I think what these three miracles are doing is is they're showing us what Jesus has to offer. And so let's look at the three offerings of Jesus in these miracles. Number one, uh, Jesus is offering spiritual healing in verses 18 through 26 as we see this, uh, the, the daughter of the ruler and this woman who was bleeding, they receive spiritual healing. Uh, an, another word for this would be hope. If our sin leaves us unclean and isolated and incurable, damned eternally, Deserving the just punishment of God, Jesus is the cure. Jesus, when we come to him in faith, when we trust him and his life and his death and his resurrection, far from being made unclean by us, he makes us clean in him. And so there's hope. In him there's always hope. Are you worried? Series, she gets it. Are you, maybe, the, maybe it's you. Maybe you're sitting here. Maybe you're that extraordinary sinner who there's no way God can forgive me. There's no way. Logan, you don't know the things I have done. No, I don't. But God does. And he says there's nobody who's beyond hope. Maybe you look at people around you and you go, how can there be hope for that sinner? You ever, uh, you ever see The Princess Bride? I love that movie. It's a good one. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. 
If you're like my wife and you don't like it, we'll pray for you. But in God's economy, you're either alive in Christ or dead in your sin. There's no mostly dead. There's no partially dead. There's no a little bit dead. Billy Crystal ain't coming along to bring some cure. You know, we're, we're dead, dead, dead. And so we can go around looking at degrees of deadness. So oh, that person is so far dead in their sin that there's no way they can be healed. But guess what? Before Jesus healed you, you were every bit as dead in your trespasses and sins because dead is dead. And therefore, there's hope for everyone. Charles Spurgeon wrote a devotion called Morning and Evening. And his, one of his devotions is uh, for December 7th. There's one for every day, a morning and an evening devotion for every day of the week. His, his, one of his December 7th, I believe it's the evening devotion on December 7th, is by far my favorite. It's not long. I've probably read it to you before. I'll probably read it to you again. But bear with me as I read it to you now. He says, walk the streets by moonlight if you dare, and you will see sinners then. Watch when the night is dark and the wind is howling and the picklock is grating in the door, and you will see sinners then. Go to yon jail, go to the jail over there, and walk through the wards and mark the men with heavy overhanging brows, men whom you would not like to meet at night. Men who you don't want to meet in a dark alley is what he's saying. And there are sinners there. Go to the reformatories, psych wards. Go to the reformatories and note those who have betrayed a rampant juvenile depravity and you will see sinners there. Go across the seas to the place where a man will gnaw a bone upon which is reeking human flesh, cannibals, and there is a sinner there. Go where you will. You need not ransack earth to find sinners, for they are common enough. You may find them in every lane and street of every city and town and village and hamlet. In other words, everywhere you go, you'll find sinners there. It is for such that Jesus died. If you will select me the grossest specimen of humanity, and if he be but born of woman... I will have hope of him yet, because Jesus Christ is come to seek and to save sinners. Electing love has selected some of the worst to be made the best. And Here's the imagery I love. Pebbles of the brook grace turns into jewels for the crown royal. Worthless dross he transforms into pure gold. Redeeming love has set apart many of the worst of mankind to be the reward of the Savior's passion. Passion there meaning suffering. Redeeming love has set apart many of the worst of mankind to be the reward of the Savior's suffering. Effectual grace calls forth many of the vilest of the vile to sit at the table of mercy and therefore let none despair. Whatever it is that plagues you and me or others, whatever has caused death, whatever leaves us separated from God and isolated from people and incurable, there is always hope. 
because of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if we're prone to think that anybody is beyond the healing power of Jesus, then there has to be something in us that believes a part of our salvation is up to us. But if it's up to him, there's nobody who's beyond hope. And so we get, firstly, spiritual healing. Secondly, we get spiritual sight. We get spiritual sight. Another word for this is perspective. These two men were spiritually blind, but because of Jesus, they were able to see. One commentator points out uh, about this passage, comparing it to Luke. He points out the, the men on the road to Emmaus, where, uh, whom Jesus met after his resurrection in Luke 24. Jesus appears to them, and they don't first recognize him. They don't have sight. But Jesus opens the scriptures and explains how it's all about him. And as he does, he then opens their eyes to be able to recognize him, and they understand who he is, and then the account ends with them having a greater understanding of all the scriptures and how they're all about Jesus. When we come to Jesus in faith, we gain spiritual sight, able to see ourselves rightly, able to see others rightly, able to see the world rightly, able to see the scriptures rightly, able to see him rightly. If your eyes can't believe what you see in the world, look more at Jesus and less at the world. You'll gain a better understanding of the world. And lastly, he gives us a spiritual voice. Spiritual voice. Another way of speaking of this would be he gives us a mission. If you were paying attention, there's a whole lot of speaking going on in these passages. In verse 33, the crowds speak about Jesus, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. They marvel at him. They are amazed by him. We were introduced to that in Matthew chapter 7, and as he does miracles and he teaches, the people still marvel at him. They're still amazed by him. We're never presented with the idea in Matthew that that's enough. It's not enough just to be amazed at Jesus. We have to trust Jesus. The miracles should have led them to faith, but in the end it did not. And so the crowds speak about Jesus. In verse 34, the Pharisees speak against Jesus. In verse 34, we're told that the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. He, he casts out demons by the power of Satan. With Matthew, they criticized him for eating with sinners with Jairus, they laughed at him for saying that his daughter was just asleep. And here they claim his power is satanic. And both of those are presented to us as the wrong options of how to respond to Jesus. How do we respond rightly to Jesus? Well, let's look at verses 10 and 26 and 31. We're going to have to back up to last week's passage to look at verse 10, but... We're told after Jesus calls Matthew out of the tax booth, and as Jesus reclined at table in the household, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew invited people to come meet Jesus. In verse 26, these two blind men, uh, having been healed, they're told by Jesus not to go tell anybody. I think Jesus wanted a break from the crowds, 
But they do it anyways. And the report of this went through all the district. Upon receiving sight, they couldn't help but to go tell others that they could see. And in verse 31, we see, uh, I'm sorry, that was verse 31. Uh, In verse 26, it's the report of the woman and the daughter of Jairus being, uh, being healed. But whether we look at any of these, Matthew, who's called out of the tax booth, Jairus and his daughter who is raised to life, the woman whose, uh, whose discharge of blood is healed, and the two blind men who come to faith in Jesus, they all go and they talk about him. They're given a spiritual voice. They're put on mission. All those who had been healed by Jesus wanted to tell others of what he had done. Do you? Lord, may we be of those who want to tell. May may we understand what you have done for us in making us clean by your power and by your righteousness, by giving us sight and the ability to see your word in the world in which we live in, and by putting us on a mission to speak forth about who you are. May we take that mission seriously for your glory, for the salvation of the lost, and for our good as well. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.